Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I've got Dr. Andrew Elder, who is an ex-neurosurgeon and currently a partner at Albion, which is a fund management company here in London in the UK, and they manage multiple funds, VCTs, etc. Um, so I've just finished speaking to Andrew, and it was a really fun podcast to do, actually. So he's obviously a doctor, the same as me, who's found his way into the investment world so we actually talk at length about how we both kind of left clinical medicine our reasons for doing so but also how that medical training has actually been invaluable to allowing us to make the impact that we're now making in healthcare from both a you know business and investment perspective um for those that might be clinicians listening thinking about doing other things Andrew talks about his career moves outside of medicine so he went to um, BCG did some management consulting so he talks about that he talks about what he enjoyed about doing that and then he talks about how he actually found his way into venture capital after that and sort of plotted his way through um, with that as the eventual goal we also talk about the history of health tech venture capital. Um, Andrew talks about when he first got into investment um, and how the world looked very different. It was very hardware based, it was very device based, it was very biotech based and actually the rise of software changed everything. The rise of the smartphone changed everything and actually the rise of different customers. So how employers, insurers, and even the consumer now have come in to sort of change business models. And we talk about how that's evolved over time since Andrew's been a VC. We talk about um, what Albion look for in companies too. So for anybody listening, looking to get investment and thinks Albion might be a place to get capital, then Andrew goes into detail on that, Um, as well as talking about some of their health tech portfolio companies as well, which are really cool. So... um, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, feel free to um, get in touch on Twitter at HSVenture, on Instagram at HS.Ventures. And as you know, our program is open for startups. We help you raise money for 0% equity. Um, so if you're good enough, feel free to apply. Send us a deck, send us an application via our website, which is HS.Ventures. So enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so started out in, in medicine uh, with an interest in research um, and went to Cambridge, studied medicine and left wanting to be a surgeon. But in the back of my head, a few mates went off and did sort of venture VC. Well, VC. Um, back in those days, it was only biotech. It wasn't really health tech. Health tech VC just didn't exist. It was, it was all about molecules. That was the 80s and 90s. And they just seemed to be having a really interesting time and I found I was reading Nature Biotech instead of Nature, the business side of commercializing molecules and I just found that more interesting than just reading about the molecules themselves. And I took a little bit of a diversion off to do a start a PhD and then realized that actually a molecules just it was just too too narrow a focus for me. I just I needed to have a little bit more variety. And got really interested in people making a lot of money out of molecules rather than discovering the next molecule. So decided to go back, finish my clinical studies and um, trained as a surgeon, worked around the world, South Africa, uh, trauma surgery in South Africa, worked in Oxford, London, uh, Sussex and trained as a neurosurgeon and then a bit like you left as a registrar. Um, I kind of saw what the rest of my life was going to look like. You saw my operating theatre list, I could see my clinic, I could see mm. what, op- what operations I was going to focus on and that was just too narrow a focus for me and this little commercial bean had started to germinate in the back of my head and some mates had gone off and started VC and I just said right that's actually there was a there was a I was sitting right in between operations and my boss came in and said look there's the next numbers up you've got to go apply for this Um, Mm. and I said well where is it and he said it's in Hull and I got nothing against Hull but I was going to move my whole family up Uh, I just got married and I was that was a moment of do I really want to go and do this or actually do I want to go and look after my commercial dream so I um I that was the moment where I just said right that's it and so I left uh and went off and interviewed didn't have a job but fortunately the missus looked after me for six months and <laughs> lined up a few jobs and that was in so a number of things so consulting MBA banking uh and industry and uh chose consulting to keep options open Ended up thinking, well, I thought I'd do two years uh, with Boston Consulting Group. Ended up doing five or six uh, just because actually I was 
bloody lucky. It was the end of the uh, just just to write the the last. I was the last hire into BCG. Big big crash in two thousand two thousand and one. The big tech crash came, and there was no more hiring. So that meant I was just hunkering down. Lucky to have a job, so I kept my job, and just learnt the ropes. Really, learnt the healthcare ropes. Uh, got a commercial education, working with pharma, med tech, private hospitals, Nokia and Oracle on their healthcare strategies and those sorts of things. So got a bit of an education into health, the early days of healthcare IT, I suppose. This is early mm. 2000s when uh, software was still pretty clunky mm. and healthcare barely knew what software was. We were <laughs> you know, still using uh, faxes and paper and that's about it. Uh, but always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to do, do VC. So um, used that training to springboard me into VC and then been here ever since, since the uh, last sort of 15 years. Nice. So going back to when you were a doctor again, which hospitals were you in? Were you in London? Uh, yeah, so started out Royal Free, um, worked at Charing Cross, um, and worked in Oxford at Radcliffe. Yeah. Um, worked down in Durban doing trauma uh, in South Africa, and then ended up in Sussex on the sort of King's Rotation. Mm. And so what's going through your head then? So you said that you saw your mates doing VC, and I guess were you getting sort of inspiration from their varied life and the things that they were looking at. The reason I asked that is because I, I never had that when I mm. was thinking about leaving. I knew that I had an itch to scratch. I just I just never knew what it was. And so I tried, I sort of went the other way and ended up trying to help companies as a doctor and try and drive them in as a doctor. Whereas yeah. you've clearly had that externally. So I guess was, was that really, I guess, helping you at that point make that decision by seeing yeah. what these other people are doing and going, actually, that's really bloody interesting yeah i think i think i was interested in the variety yeah that they had i was interested in the fact that they could get really in, in depth into the science but that was the interest that they could stop at the interesting part and not have to then devote the rest of their day to the science it was just understanding the science being able to talk to the scientists but then fundamentally they had to then think about how you're gonna make money out of that science yeah that was just an extra dimension yeah which which took away that sort of singular focus of i'm gonna stare down this microscope or in this petri dish mm day in, day out for the next 30 mm. years, or I'm going to spend every day in the operating theatre mm. or clinic day in, day out. And instead, it mentally just sort of opens you up to say, I'm going to meet all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life with loads of different technologies uh, and think about them in a way, because every technology is different, you have to think about them in a different way. So um, in terms of how you commercialise them, there may be commercial mm. frameworks that are all similar and you have to think about similar things, but fundamentally every single case is different mm. now you could say every surgical case or medical case is, is different but actually you'll know you know as well as i do that actually they're they're not they're, they're really really quite similar there's a different person on the end but in terms of business every single case is different so the variety um and, and fundamentally it's still dealing with people mm. but you get a very objective endpoint too and it's it's just a, it's a fascinating and interesting world trying to build early stage businesses um yeah, and I really relate to that because I had a similar moment when I kind of viewed my future and saw the repetitiveness, and it was the, a lot of the repetitiveness that got me, especially with anaesthetics. And I agree with you that in business it is just so much different every day, every case, every investment in in sort of your case. But again, in, in, in medicine, it's getting more and more standardised, and mm. I think it's lost that a lot of that artistic nature mm. that I found at the time through helping these companies and trying to get them adopted within healthcare systems, I found that a really interesting challenge. Mm. Because again, it seems to me like the, the challenge of that business side was really attracting you. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's massive challenge, but there's massive rewards, yeah. uh, both financial and non-financial. Um, but but there's yeah, there's huge variety and you're thinking on your feet all the time. Mm. And, and no day is the same. Mm. You know, when you're originating deals, you're structuring deals, you're actually doing the deals, you're fundraising, you're selling companies, you're sitting having strategy sessions with them, getting involved in the boards, everything from hiring and unfortunately sometimes firing. You know, there's a it's a real mix. And when you've got a portfolio of six or seven or eight of these of these companies, you've not only got that sort of variety by stages of business and stages of cycle in their investment cycle but also different sectors so you know we're investing in digital health for you know into pharma companies or mm. into hospitals 
or direct to consumer or medical technologies you know every single one is a different subsector where you have to understand the dynamics and the competitors and the mm. um, who might buy your company thinking five years hence it's it's like a massive game of sort of chess so how, on how, a million different dimensions it's wonderful so how was it trying to explain that to other clinicians at the time um surely people must have thought you were crazy yeah most to... most people said what on earth are you doing and yeah. what, what is venture capital I you know, you're a new you're was... a brain surgeon you know, yeah there was there was a mixture of, some people just want to focus on well what do you what do you have to do and i don't understand that what is it you're trying to do mm. and and lots of people actually had lots of plenty of um empathy with that you know they could see why you want to you know maybe leave the nhs or go and try something different but they were trying to get their head around what it was you were off to do and they hadn't really got their head around that i was fortunate to have a couple of friends who'd gone off and done it and so i had a sort of really in-depth feel of what it was like and so on that's why i knew well, i thought i knew it was attractive and what i wanted was a, would be a good fit uh, but then there's the other group of people who just focus on what you left behind. It's fascinating. Some people just go, oh, what a waste. And it's yeah. all retrospective. And that's just, for me, that's just rubbish. Because, you know, you only live once and you're only ever moving forward. It doesn't matter what you've done the last 12 years. Yeah. And anyway, I have to admit, for, for that 12 years of training I did, I wouldn't swap it for the world. If I had to go back and do it again, I'd do exactly the same thing again. Because medical school was fun. Training as junior doctor was it was a great privilege. There were lots of shit bits, but there were lots of, you know, good bits as well. And you get a, you get an experience you'd never get anywhere else. So, if anyone comes to me, medical students, you know, you left medicine, you know, should I do medicine? Presumably not. I say absolutely. You, if you want to do medicine, go do it. It's a fantastic place to learn a lot about life and the world. But it doesn't mean you have to stick with it. Mm. And you've got to love it if you're going to stay in. Yeah. I think, and that's what I say to people. I think even even the people questioning about leaving. I tend to ask them or to, you know, speak to them about the same things, which is trying to find out what they actually love doing. And if what they love doing is learning about the science and treating patients, well, yeah, stay in because you're going to need to sit exams on this yeah. for the rest of your life. You're going to need to keep learning about it for the rest of your life. And you're going to need to keep treating patients for the rest of your life. So those are things you've got to love. And if, if you're falling out of love with those elements, then it's inevitably going to be a bit dif- difficult to stay in. Yeah. And I guess the, the other bit as well, that I learned through helping startups on the ground floor get adopted into healthcare was it was the impact that, that they could make yeah. because when yeah. they you know if they got sales they grew as a company mm-hmm. and then they made the same impact elsewhere mm-hmm. and all of a sudden in a couple of moves of the chessboard they've made more impact than yeah. I would yeah. as a doctor in a month that they was affected a- so many more patients than, than I could do individually and, and that's you know for me, I was just like, well, that's what I want to be in now because was, uh, hugely making so much more impact than me, you know. It was a direct calculation I made. It's exactly exactly really? the same. I had exactly the same. I actually sat down and I worked out the number of operations I would do in my lifetime. Wow. And how, therefore how many patients I would actually, you know, impact. And I suppose I went into healthcare with quite, a, with quite big ambitions about helping the world and all this sort of stuff. As you do, and it, and it was genuine, and not just to get through the interview. I think you know, it was absolutely genuine. Um, but then, when leaving, I, I did have a little bit of a oh, but am I leaving all that behind? Until I did that calculation, and then I realised that one of the attractive things about trying to bring technologies through is that the impact you can have is is a hundred thousand fold compared mm. to what you would do. I was, you know, my calculation took me into the sort of low thousands in terms of you know, neurosurgery. You're quite long operations. You don't do that many. Uh, impacting depending on what specialty you're in, you know, it's usually low thousands, maybe into 10, 15,000 patients in your lifetime. And if you if you're already thinking about impacting the world, you know, 10 to 15,000 just doesn't register on the Richter scale. And so it it actually was, whilst it wasn't a prime driver, it was a really nice justification back to myself of actually I can still go and have impact. Yeah, that's really nice. So where we are in the story so far, so you, so you've you, you managed to leave medicine. Um, you lined up the job at BCG. What was it like in consulting? Was it everything that you wanted from leaving medicine? Uh, yes. I still remember the feeling in the first week when I joined BCG. I had this wonderful feeling of a burden lifting from my shoulder because I found everyone had a can-do attitude. And I'd just spent the last 12 years in a place where I was justifying my existence every minute mm-hmm. and always having to you know, apologize for 
even existing with you know lots of people you know asking for x-rays and asking for blood tests and asking for this and asking for that and everyone just put up a barrier and it was your job to overcome those barriers and so you became very good at, at overcoming barriers i mean that's a good training in itself because you you know you find in life that's that happens um but then to go to someone like bcg where everyone was trying to help each other was extraordinary to suddenly people say well how can i help you with that on well, my first day i've ever met them that's it just felt absolutely bizarre, but it felt wonderful. And so suddenly being in the commercial world uh, where people want to get things done and they realize that they need to help each other to get things done is, was, was great. Uh, the second thing about someone like BCG, I suppose, is, and this is where you have to be a little bit careful about choosing your culture, uh, is that it's superbly supportive. So it's very collegiate and it's all about uh, helping you get better, uh, whether it's performance management, whether it's working on a case, whether it's... You know, it's just very, very um, development driven. Uh, and it's not trying to catch you out and show them you, know, you failed. It's trying to do the exact opposite. And so everyone's wrapping themselves around you. And when you are completely ignorant of any commercial language and you're chucked in the deep end, that's a huge support. It's like being wrapped around with a big, mm. a big sort of inflatable life belt. Mm. Um, and so, so that was probably why I stayed there a long time. I kept mm. on learning and I kept on having support around me with people who valued what I'd had done as well. It's the other important thing. If you spent 12 years learning one thing, uh, to just chuck it out is quite hard. Um, some, some consultancies, they just don't want you to do, use your, your knowledge. They just want to train you up as a, you know, a bit of a, you know, the person running the model and just being the sort of uh, the slave on the, on the team. Um, but actually, BCG was hugely supportive. Um, so I guess one bit of advice I have is choose your, your culture well. Mm. Uh, make sure it's the right fit for what you want. And that's, that's all about looking at the people and the way they, they, they're going to value you. It's a really good point about culture, actually. Because, again, I experienced something really similar with my mindset, which is whenever I'm faced with a problem to solve or if I'm asked something, it's, in my head, it's always yes first mm. unless you prove me wrong. You know, I'll try something until it doesn't work or yeah. I'll give that help, I'll give that advice or I'll try and solve the problem or I'll try and get around it. So it's yes unless otherwise specified in my head. But I, I often found as, as a clinician, as you said, you're, you're battling against the no. You're battling against that radiologist that doesn't want to scan anybody mm. if he can help it. Mm. Or, you know, it, it, it's always that kind of no culture in it. Mm. I was all, I'm very kind of receptive to... I guess vibes and and it, it used to get me down quite often because mm. I just couldn't I couldn't function in my job properly because seemingly I wasn't getting back what I was putting out mm. and it yeah it, it it didn't feel like a culture fit it really felt yeah. it, it felt like square peg round hole it really did a lot of times and like wading through treacle because again the way I tried to fix that problem was I thought well if I can make everybody's job easier if I can bring in these new technologies and things that will streamline things and give people more time and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I just went on this journey of learning how difficult it was to actually innovate. Um, and then you've never looked back. And then I've never looked back because again, it's just, it's, it's solving problems. And I love solving problems. I love actually, you know, rallying people around a, a problem to develop a solution that genuinely works and you see impact from. And that's quite addictive when it works. And yeah. I had a couple of early wins when I, when I did it as a clinician. Um, just a few kind of quality improvement projects that that went really well, um, and you just saw how happy it, it made people. Yeah, you saw, and you saw genuine impact. You saw a genuine. Did it last, or was it that sort of feeling of so? I, so, project win, fantastic, and then you know, honeymoon period, and then actually, reality takes over and the system sucks you down again. It's always that. It was. It was always that because sustaining any sort of quality improvement change is always really difficult and yeah. I think people get on can get on board a wave of optimism and again I was quite good at that um, the communication bit to actually rally those people around but then yeah when things aren't quite going smoothly or you know if they need to keep the work up it, it becomes quite difficult yeah. so yeah it, it was kind of a bit of a cycle so I was going to ask you then so when you were consulting did you have an eye on investing Yes. And did so, you shape your role then to help you towards investing or was it just something that you kept in the background? Um, yeah, no, do you know what? so investing was always front of mind that BCG training was all about training in order to go into VC. Okay. But it started out being biotech VC, which is basically mm. developing molecules. Yeah. Um, 
And what I hadn't expected was that during my time at BCG, I was I would get exposed to all sorts of different types of businesses and different sectors. And I realized it was the the business and the sectors that were fascinating. It wasn't actually the, the molecule particularly that was what was driving me. So actually I realized it didn't really matter where I ended up doing VC. I could do VC in anything. Um, and I then realized that actually the biotech companies are not really companies in the sense that they're not trying to generate, generate revenues to start with. They're really just a cost base and they're developing an asset. And so from a financial perspective, they're really quite uninteresting. They're interesting from an investment perspective and valuations and all this sort of thing. But in terms of building a, a functional company that's going to end up generating revenues and profits, it's not what they are. They are literally just development houses. And so that I found you know, potentially just a bit one or two dimensional. Whereas for, for, for me, the, what, part of the interest was building a company which was people, but it's sustainable re- you know, products and generating sustainable revenues and eventually profits. And that was the full, the full bit. And I, I was just interested in that. And then medtech, software, hospitals, it doesn't really matter. I found them all interesting. So then getting a broader venture role became much more attractive. So you know, I'd interviewed and met all the biotech VCs, but realized that actually there was something missing here. And that was the fact that I wanted to get invest in real companies rather than just technologies. Uh, so when my opportunity came up to join Generalist House, but build their healthcare investing, then I jumped at it straight away. But that, that was a five-year journey. So I was interviewing with people for you know, three to five years, just getting, to, getting a feel for what was out there, how people invested, and what was the right fit for me. Mm. And actually the thing which really triggered it, again, was going back to cultural fit, the thing which really made me join where I am now is um, was the team, was the work culture, was the fact that I had people I could enjoy going to work with who were going to be supportive of teaching me again another whole, I was starting day one with zero investing skill or capability. I wanted people around me who were, experience and could teach me something but actually wanted to teach me something as well and so I could work with rather than just having someone just say well in the deep end off you go good luck mate mm. so so when when did you join Albion so 2005 2005 yeah what did health tech look like back then because I guess as you've as you've alluded to there was a lot of biotech stuff the definitions of digital health, health yeah. tech, I mean, God knows what on earth all yeah. these things actually are, where, yeah. where the boundaries are and things. But the way I think of it is that you've got life sciences at one end, you've got pure technology like your Snapchats and Facebook at the other, and digital health is somewhere that encompasses that middle bit. Yeah. Things that are modernizing healthcare, be that devices selling to the consumer or to, or you know, back-end admin systems for hospitals. It's mm. kind of like all-encompassing. But I guess even that, probably didn't have an enormous landscape back then. No. So back then, yeah, it was all biotech and there was some med, med tech and, you know, devices and diagnostic type innovation. Yeah. In terms of VC, most of it was biotech. Um, the funds were sort of, you know, big fund was 50 to 100 million. Um, and healthcare software really was the most basic, most clunky Windows-based thing you could ever imagine and was barely used at all so if you think the first pack systems were coming in late 90s i was i worked at hammersmith when i think it was the first pack system in the uk in 97 98 that was the first bit of digital anything in a hospital pretty much the radiology software and the radiology side of things yeah. yeah and that took till about 2005 to become really mainstream and that was just images and so in terms of notes and stuff you know we we barely use computers um, in the 90s, 90s and early 2000s. So um, it was really, really manual. Um, and what's changed since 2005 from an investment perspective is, is yeah, the digitalization of the entire industry. And then the distribution of that outside just a hospital into smartphones. So smartphones and digitalization are the two things which completely changed the landscape. And that allied, if you like, with what's been going on in the technology side of things in terms of, and again, this is down to a smartphone, a lot of it, the new business models, and with consumers engaging in a completely different way with every corporation out there is now, you're engaging through a smartphone or computer digital interface of some sort. 
that's now coming into into healthcare. So we've got new business models, new methods of engagement, but it's all down to the fact that we digitalize and we've got smartphones. If it wasn't for those two things, digital health just wouldn't exist, I don't think. I completely agree. One of the things I've actually written down here to talk to you about is how business models have changed in software, because I imagine, as you've said, from 2005, software started existing through the likes of PAX, but then it seems to me there was this and it still exists to an extent, so many healthcare entrepreneurs will develop some software or even some hardware in some cases, and they'll have this default opinion that they just need to sell it to the NHS. And a lot of it is, I think, grounded in their passion and their ambition to do a good thing. And they've started this health tech company because they want to impact the health of the nation. And they see the NHS and they just think, oh, it'll be great. I'll just sell it to the NHS and it'll get heck of a lot more streamlined and efficient and I'll, I'll make money and exit my company yeah it's just not that way round, is it it no. really isn't so when i first started investing 2005 we had a, a policy which was any business plan with the nhs in it just strike out that line from the business plan completely and it's just unless the model stands up without that line don't go anywhere near mm. it and that was you know a reasonably good rule which has been well uh, well worth keeping to. Um, things have changed now, I think, in the last two or three years, but we've been waiting for yeah, 14, 15 years to actually start investing in the NHS. But at the outset, it, you know, the, the level of technology adoption was minimal. It's not an, an, an organization with which is structurally aligned to innovate using technology. It's just so many things, so many barriers and so many structural sort of misalignments, mm-hmm. which just means that for them, however much there's a, a will or a good intention, it's just not going to happen. So don't even try and change that. That was the, the initial um, the initial point of view. So yeah, all our investing was sort of pharmaceutical um, industry uh, facing, or it was private hospital facing, or um, you know health insurers now are, are, are coming in and are very heavily data-driven. So anyone who's data-driven anyway, innately like insurance, is going to be all over technology once it's digitalized. But healthcare didn't really know what to do with all the digital data. It's just still working it out. Um, so we steer clear of that. But fortunately now, the last few years, we've seen that changing because all the, you know, the records are now digital and people are using smartphones in their everyday life. So that's just not a big, a big leap. But, only, but that didn't start 10 years ago, um, 10, 12 years ago. So going back to your question, 2005, what did it look like? You know, there was no no smartphones. There was um, clunky Windows software. There was a health system that was not keen on in, on adopting uh, or benefiting from from data or anything like that. And there were market by market, you know, intermarket borders. You know, cross mm. cross border expansion was incredibly hard. We did a big piece at BCG for Oracle, looking at their sort of European expansion strategy, and we just there were so many barriers about moving from France to Germany to Italy to Spain. And that's a big organization. It, it, they, even big organizations couldn't do it. So try and be a startup doing that. Mm. just wasn't going to happen. But the other thing that's changed is the entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem has developed. And that's not a peculiarly health. Healthcare has benefited from the fact that that's developed in general tech. And that's developed, I think, again, just as one of these, it's just on the back of being able to change business models from the bottom up because of smartphone technology and digital technology just means that you can develop a software platform and a company really capital efficiently, which means the barriers drop, which means more people are enticed into doing it, which means you've got really good quality people growing businesses, which means you get an ecosystem of finance, which means that once you get some good successes from those companies and we've seen you know all the big tech companies growing up in 10 years you know all the mm. uh, amazons and facebook's and ubers 10 years you've gone from zero to multi-billion tens of billion dollar mm. that that encourages a financial ecosystem which then feeds back in into the bottom and, and you get this sort of self-fulfilling cycle that going on in tech has spilled over into health tech now finally in the us and it's starting to happen in europe uh, and so that sort of combined the ecosystem growing, and then you've got a, a, a customer who's starting to get a, get the hang of saying we, we have to use these technologies now. Just means there's a lot more opportunity now in the UK. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of points I want to pick up on there. The first, the first one's interesting about when you say 
the customer because the customers have changed and are changing and, and as you say the customers are starting to understand what they want and how they can actually buy things and by that I mean okay we can talk about the NHS as a customer or certainly NHS organisations as a customer not that the NHS is a specific thing but also as you say employers insurers and in fact the consumer yeah I think we had um, Tanya from LV yeah. <clears throat> on the podcast last week great company yeah great company um with a huge focus on design of a device that mm. adds significant value, which actually optimizes someone's health. Mm. They go and get some evidence that it works. I mean, a lot of it's common sense, but they did go and get some evidence that it works. And it's a similar thing with the likes of Peter Haynes from Sleepio we've had on this podcast as well. Um, another great company. Yeah. Another great company, Stephen from Echo. You know, they've got this heavy emphasis on design for the consumer as well as building evidence-based products that add significant value. And I think it's really interesting for me, the rise of the consumer, the rise of this. We've had Hamish from Thriver on as well, mm-hmm. talking about this as well. This 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 feeling that consumers want to optimize their own health. Yep. They want to, they accept that the NHS will only go so far, but actually people have disposable income that they're willing to spend on optimizing their health further. Yep. And... I think it has given rise to this this customer base now of consumers, and and I think it's a great model to you know focus on design because I think Stephen from Echo said it to me, you know, what is a patient at the end of the day? Well, mm. a patient is just a person, just like a consumer. Yeah. So don't they deserve the highest quality um, devices and and products and and all these different things? Even yeah. From a software point? Well, especially if they're paying for it. So the, the the difficulty is that in lots of healthcare, the patient's not used to paying for it exactly so they are consumers exactly but if someone else is buying your product for you you don't get a choice over it um but i think what's happened is that because patients are now engaging with businesses in a different way and with products in a different way um and again that's driven by smartphone and um uh, you know new new business models um that level of engagement just puts them much more at the center uh, there are other things I think drive them to the centre as well. There's the whole, you know, personalisation, you know, side of things, and the realisation that actually a top-down medical-driven, you know, um, doctor-driven system is not is not actually that efficient. Um, the concept of putting the patient at the middle is now possible because of data flows and digitalisation. Um, and actually, there's a realisation that not only does that fit with increasing personalisation in medicine, but also you can you can re reset pathways you can make things more efficient if you just follow the patient all the way through and you can you can create tools to enable that you know those steps you can link them up using whether it's smartphone tablets computers doesn't matter but it's that software sort of singularity of software or interoperability of software which you can now do whereas again back in 2005 Mm -hmm. no way a software system was going to talk to themselves so um, regulatory burden as well is hurdles are starting to come down um, because, again, the regulators realise technology is here to stay, so we have to embrace it. 2005, regulators would have just been up in arms about, you know, um, having data going in the cloud. Um, actually, that's that's another area where I, I guess it's just freed up the whole mm, the whole true. model is is the advent of the, of cloud and cloud cloud based business models. Um, again, that just reduces the barriers to entry, reduces the cost to build a company, all those sort of great things and. Again, even just as much as five years ago, hospitals uh, and patients wouldn't have even been dreaming of having their records in, in the cloud. And it's just happened so quickly that you wouldn't even dream of doing anything but being in the cloud now. It's, so, it's so, so true. The, th- the thought of, of trying to explain that to somebody when I was a doctor, that, yeah, yeah we're just going to store your data in this thing. Might be secure, don't know. It's not your computer, by the way. It's, it's somewhere over there in India. But you know, it, you know, they would just, they would, yeah, they would completely freak out. Oh, when we first yeah. invested in our, in our, um, uh, you know, software and software analytics businesses, they were doing on-premise. They were selling on-premise solutions for a million pound a pop wow. to hospitals. Wow! And they're doing quite a good job of it. I imagine they were. But that's the kind of thing that you know it, that would be a big budgetary sale, and it would take eighteen yeah. months to go through the whole process of getting that million pound sign off was probably the biggest you know spend any hospital would have so they got to be pretty sure it was the right thing and in the end that was out of 
that was um, out of date within three years of them putting it in. You know, it's just it was bananas. Whereas now you can future proof it. You can you can mm. you know subscription model as you go fits people's budgets, and so we're starting to see those those hurdles to adoption come yeah. down. It's still you know it's still plenty of hurdles. Don't get me wrong, it's still hard, but they're definitely getting less. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to pick up on was what I absolutely love in a lot of these companies that I mentioned as well is just how people just are not standing for poor design in health tech or just in healthcare or they're, they're just not standing for it anymore. Yeah. There's so much demand now coming from patients yeah. to actually just sort this out. And it's it's because, I mean, we hear it quoted all the time, you know, I, I can do banking on my phone, so yeah. why can't I do health care on my phone? I can do this on my phone, so why can't I do that? And Once you've used a slick user interface, it doesn't half show even what you thought was a reasonably good interface last week. It just shows you how crap it was. And once you've gone to the good thing, and you know Apple and people like that are setting the tone, once you're used to taking a, something out of the box and having that, ooh, nice feeling, or when you use a really slick interface, you go, that's how it should be. And as soon as you use something bad, you stop using it. And if you've got any consumer decision in the process, and that consumer's saying, well, I'm going to stop using it, well, then your business model is completely defunct. So if you want to introduce the patient to the to the business model somewhere and they've got some control as to whether they adopt it or use it or pay for it or some combination, then you've got to make sure they're going to carry on using it. And so then the world is your is your benchmark. All the all the your banking mm. apps, whatever yeah. apps you use, that's your benchmark. It's no longer yeah. just what they happen to, you know, is dictated for you at the hospital. That's just not... not You're right, enough. because in, historically then when when purchasers were, you know, buying these things en masse or, you know, going out to tender and doing this procurement process and they get the most politically correct solution in, it's for other people, it's for their population. So they're not connected to how well it actually works for that person. And so they make the decision, they buy it, and then it's just given to their population. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, that clearly is making such a huge difference. So Albion. Yes. What impresses you now with the company? Well, what are you looking for? What's your what's your thesis? Let's yeah, so I mean, it sounds really trite, but actually, still, the first thing that we really look for is to have that connection with the team and see a team mm. that you just think is going to be able to deliver. Because the one thing you know is that that team is not going to deliver the plan they present to you that day. But they're going to need to get over all the roadblocks that come in their way, they're, and they're going to na- navigate around it. And that, I suppose, is you know, when I when we when I first started, and when we first started. We were probably much more plan-driven and market-driven and sector-driven. And we still are. Those things are still important. But what you realize is that where you've had your successes have come from the, the people, the, the entrepreneurs being really driven, really commercial, really resourceful, really um, uh, you know, dynamic and fast-moving and nimble and being able to attract good people. Mm. Um, uh, and and as, well, as well as finance. So some... some Business models will require large financing raise in rounds, and so you need to be able to identify someone who's just going to be able to tell a story well, communicate it well, and then deliver on it. Um, and those are quite rare qualities. They're quite hard to really, you know, categorize and put in a framework and tick boxes. You fundamentally just want to sit down with someone and mm. see whether they have them, and that's where you take your view and your judgment. But that's the number one thing. And then after that, it's the quality of the technology, the applicability to multiple markets, how strong those markets are, your differentiation, and all, all those kind of regular stuff. Um, but it does sound trite, but it is team. And it's not just whether they've done lots of big things in the past. It's about whether that you think you can work with them, build a good relationship, and together um, you know, influence each other mm. to get the company to the right endpoint. So where do you guys sit then in terms of life sciences, digital health, consumer tech? So we generally come from um, the more regulated and business to professional side of the fence. And that's probably just because Christoph and I have got medical backgrounds and so we just we just feel comfortable with the clinical side of things. And we're very clinically driven in terms of um, data and validation. So we start with that sort of high hurdle of you've got to prove this to me that this works and, you know, randomized con- controlled trials and, you know, high hurdles of demonstrating because we know that that's what really drives outcomes is really good technologies where you can demonstrate that um, sort of level of, of validation. Um, and 
that's not to say that you know randomized controlled trials the world's moving in terms of digital health because you can't do rcts and all this thing so but we like that sort of discipline around being data driven i've 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 seen that in play a lot recently the it was a couple of years ago when you know i around my first accelerator that there was a lot of debate around you know should people go straight to consumer should they really focus on getting a load of evidence first should they then go and sell to the professional side you know which way round should it be it's crystallizing for me now to be perfectly honest that you should get some evidence first be really strong on the evidence that you get it's the sort of the the lv model or the sleepio model you know just be really hard on the evidence but then you you can use that to then go and sell to the consumer because consumers are not idiots yeah they're going to look at the thing with the most evidence if you want to go down that route but here's the plot twist with the evidence you can actually go to the professional side as well and you can think about getting it you know into the into healthcare so i agree and 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 here's what one of the rubs is that the the consumer side is, is massive and the opportunity there is massive so don't get me wrong we, whilst we come from the professional regulated side we actually are looking quite a lot at the consumer side mm-hmm. but we are just going there sort of gently because we just don't understand the consumer side there's a lot more you need to know about digital marketing around brand building um, and that is about building a completely different team and recognising a different set of skill sets and we, we just don't have as much experience there but in order to get that opportunity, you know, to be able to move into that opportunity and, and find good companies on that side, um, what we're finding is that if you if you do want to set up a B two C type model, uh, if it's in anything that's clinically related, the clinical community will have a viewpoint. Absolutely. And if you alienate the clinical community by not having enough data, they will just put you down as snake oil, and all of a sudden you've got an uphill job in terms of marketing to the consumer base you might think it's great to start with until you get a few clinicians coming out and saying yeah but this is snake oil completely agree completely agree so do you want to tell us about a couple of your portfolio companies so there's a couple of main areas that we are interested in on on that professional regulated side of the fence and the first was where we i suppose we started out was in patient engagement and that was started out patient engagement with pharmaceutical companies and um that's really, if you like, quite, quite simple, low-hanging fruit. And this is digitalization of clinical trials. And it's really saying you've got an inefficient paper-based clinical trial system where there's a clinician and a, and a patient, but the data coming back from that patient is absolutely critical to the success of that trial. The regulators need very well-structured data. Uh, but the way it was being collected is just really inefficient. And over time that industry has digitalized. It's taken a long time because it's very, very conservative. Whenever you have regulators, it's very conservative. But we've uh, backed a number of businesses, including one called Exco In Touch, which was very successful, which were in that interface between pharmaceutical company and, and patient. And it's all about both collecting data from them in a structured way, which can satisfy regulators or can be used in drug development process or can be useful to the commercial arms of pharmaceutical companies. And then potentially have a, a feedback to patients to help mm. them understand their medication, medical, you know, how to, how, to, how to take those medicines, how to better comply, all this sort of thing. So you can end up with a, a two-way interface. And so we've got, a, if you like, a, a sort of number of businesses around that, mm. around that space. The, I actually looked at that one. It was one of the ones I looked at. And it, it struck me immediately that it had a very clear model. It had a very clear route to exit even, and it did exit. From yeah. Tell, yeah, yeah, no, that was, was a great exit, and uh, but that was a relatively mature market. The reason why we went in there was because we looked at the hospital side of things, and we looked at the direct-to-consumer side, and it just wasn't clear where the budgets were. It wasn't mm. clear if people knew how to spend their their money, how to buy these services. They were doing pilots and things, but no one was going past a fifty k here or a hundred k there. But we had this market of pharma trials, which exists, and it's multi multi billion, and they were. 10% penetrated or 20% penetrated in terms of collection of data directly from patients using a digital platform. So there's this massive shift. The shift will have to go that way. But we could see the, the adoption starting to come through. And because every trial is really important and has a big budget, you know you've got a customer there somewhere as long as you can convince them that the digital platform is better than the paper one. Mm. That's what took time. And we, and we got in just as that sort of paradigm was starting to shift. And once it got shifting... 
you know, it was just a runaway train. They were front of the queue. Yeah. So, yeah. And we've got a, number, a couple of others which are, are in similar associated uh, aspects of that market, which are serving clinical trials or real world evidence, which is another big thing of, you know, the, a big shift in, in, in medicine is it's not just about trials. We now need to see, is it working in the real world? And the pharmaceutical companies have to demonstrate that because the payers want to know it. So the pharmaceutical companies are now saying, well, how do we demonstrate to the payers? Well, we need to get information back from patients. So sure, sure, patient engagement is important. Patient is at the center of all this. The mobile phone is the enabler for patient to be at the center. And the pharmaceutical companies are one of the really key stakeholders in the, in the whole thing. And they are the ones with budgets right now. So that was the thesis, if you like, around um, about four, four investments in our portfolio on that. Um, the other big chunk of thesis is the what we call tech-enabled services. And the thesis there goes that care provision is fundamentally a person-driven pathway with elements that can be automated and outsourced or put over to software or um, improved you know, using software or tech-driven yeah, approaches. That, yeah. But fundamentally... In lots of the in part of a sort of pathway, there, there has to be a person, either because the autom- automation doesn't exist yet, and it might in future, or because fundamentally it, you're never going to get the person out because it's a relationship-driven mm-hmm. thing, or it's there's a there's a hands-on physical element like a like an operation or something that it's just going to take ages to get the person out. So there is still a service to be delivered, but there's massive inefficiencies, mm-hmm. and that's everything from access. You know, can you access those people? Well. If it's face-to-face in a room, you've got constraints of geography and time. And, but as soon as you can use tech to you know, be in the same room as someone who's in San Francisco and, and Beijing, it doesn't really matter. You, all of a sudden, your access to a pool of service providers is, you know, is infinite. Absolutely. So access is much, more, much better. Then, then as soon as you start using tech for delivering that or parts of that service, you've got the data stream. You can start pulling the data and you can start automating parts of that that process or that pathway you can use uh, artificial intelligence to help introduce decision making in that you can start to automate and improve the decision making you can make the passage from one step to another more efficient so instead of waiting for six weeks or whatever for a you know for a decision to be made you can have it there and then on the spot so all of a sudden you can compress timelines and you can take out cost Uh, so that's the basis of a tech-enabled service and that can be anything from uh, you know relatively you know acute care or and secondary care primary care it can be a, a associated services like nutrition and dietetics it can mm. be mental health it can be a whole range of things and so we've got investments in in those areas in mental health and dietetics where we've got a combined service provision with therapists and nutritionists Uh, but there's a software platform which is fundamentally underpinning the whole scalability of the business. Mm. We've mentioned those two things. There are other ones um, like Forward Health, for example, which is as a as are you guys doing for Forward? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're in there with Stride, and and it's you know it's early stage for us. This is an unusual one where we've gone in very small, very early because we think it could be very explosive. Yeah. Um, and could move very very fast, and we'll need lots of backing in the future. And Going to my first point, we just think some of the team are just fantastic, and so you've got you've got real innovative, ambitious, entrepreneurial uh, guys with a mixture of mm-hmm. tech experience and medical experience, and so there's an interesting uh, combination there. There's lots of challenges for it, but we're quite excited by it. And the thing which really excited us, you know, as a doctor, and you might appreciate this, is that is that where you see people on the ground starting to use a technology in ways that they start thinking of themselves that's a quite a powerful tool you've put in their hands because and they start using it uh, so what that what that company is seeing is it's being used for all sorts of use cases actually the challenge is trying to focus on which is the real killer use case which is the one which is really going to move the needle for the company but the doctors who are using it are using it in so many different ways and just don't want it taken out of their hands and that's one of the signs for us of a you know real really useful powerful technology um And it's an area of the hospital or healthcare which is just so badly done. You know, communication is so badly done. We've only just had an edict to get rid of bleeps. And I couldn't believe it, having left 20, <laughs> 20-odd years ago that bleeps were still being used. I genuinely couldn't believe it. They're just so reliable, though. 
and just just, so every relaxed. time I hear that beat, you know, I still, do you know what? I still shudder. So, so, do you know what? When a when a big truck reverses and I hear that beat, yeah. my my hand still goes to my scrub pocket. <laughs> like every single time I hear that noise, it's still, it's just like a reflex that will never go away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. When um, the oven goes off, I have exactly the same. Straight straight onto the scrub pocket. Yeah. It's, it's outrageous. Um, so yeah, so we're excited about forward. Just you know, communication. Who knows who's going to win in that in that market? Um, but that's you know, that's going to be a fast mover um, in some way. What are the other really really exciting ones? So I've mentioned yeah. So Helios mental health. The fantastic thing about that. Oh, is, you guys are in for Helios. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's um, great thing about that. It's just such a massive demand and need and challenge of you know kids' mental health is going is just going off the scale at the moment and. We've got an old system of therapists, face-to-face therapists, which is just not fit for purpose when your demand goes off the scale like that. And the gold standard is to have family-centric care. So not just the kid, but the family and the siblings and school and everyone needs to be involved so they understand the pressures and, and the triggers. But how are you going to get all those people in a room? But you know, it's not rocket science now with technology just to do it, do it around a technology platform. So suddenly access is way better the level of engagement is way better the outcomes are better it's cheaper it's you know so it's a win-win for everyone um i completely agree on the mental mental health side it really i think it's so 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 necessary for it's one of the areas where i think technology could if done sensibly and properly could have that a real 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 significant impact because it's so scalable yeah and because it's i mean I've, i've done quite a few articles for forbes on this recently with mental health and a few of the companies but the issue seems to be it's how do you, it's how do you scale that one to one interaction because that's what people really need they need to speak to a human being but they can't so because then there's waiting times and all these other obvious issues with with delivering mental health services so it just seems to me like technology could and, and is being such an important enabler for for actually getting people the the help that they need yeah it's it's a the, the reassuring thing is it, it demonstrates just how how much you can improve access and utilization of therapists, yeah. which is a massive bottleneck. As soon as you free it up using a technology platform, you suddenly realize you can actually you can you can meet this demand so much more efficiently. So that's a that's a great thing to be able to do. And if we just start using it across the board, um, the level of efficiency of a lot of our associated services, you know, not not the sort of you know mainstream acute, but a lot of those services around the edge, like um, uh, you know, like um, better mental health and nutrition and physio and occupation, all these sorts of things, that the efficiency will be way higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite exciting. Um, at the same time, it's you know, really quite quite shocking to see what that mountain of demand is, is looking like. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, actually, one other area that I'd like to touch on, actually, is, is, is rare diseases. So going all the way back to your point about impact, um, we've been privileged and actually lucky enough through one of our other funds, the UCL Technology Fund, to get involved in rare diseases. And one of the um, sort of knock-on effects of that is that we've also done th- through our regular tech funds, um, our venture capital trusts, we're also invested in a rare disease data company. And that's because of the, if you like, the sort of um, a crossover effect of getting to know rare diseases from a therapeutics perspective and seeing the, the impact you can have with a rare disease community uh, and the power of rare communities data. So we've backed a business called RareMark, which is all about harnessing longitudinal data sets for rare disease patients to try and let them harness their data set and use it for the good of their patient community to, to find cures for their particular diseases. So it, it illustrates a couple of things. A, the big impact you can have with technology on people whose lives are completely blighted by rare disease or um, their lives are ended by rare disease. Um, and it impacts the, the power of data to help do that and to sort of bring alive the fact that patient, you may be one of 200 patients in the world with a disease, but suddenly your data set can actually mean something and there might be someone somewhere in the world who wants to find a cure for it. So we've invested in a business called Orchard Therapeutics through the UCL Tech Fund, which is out of Great Ormond Street, that business in four years of being invested by F Prime, and we were lucky enough to come in alongside F Prime, has gone from startup to 1.7 billion dollars on Nasdaq in four years, 
And that's all on the, on the back of gene therapies for curing rare diseases. Now, the first indication is in an indication that will only probably sell 20 or 30 treatments a year in the world. So most people would say, well, how do you build a business on a patient community with 20 or 30 patients in the world who, who get it? And the point is that there's another four and a half, five thousand diseases like it's the long, that. The long tail. And if your platform works, and this is a company, this that particular disease, when we invested, it had cured thirty kids of terminal um, immunodeficiency. Uh, all of a sudden, and now that I don't know, they're well, well north of a hundred in terms of all their different diseases. People's lives saved with with nigh on a hundred percent success rate. That's a sort of <sighs> treatment rate which is just unheard of. All of a sudden, that becomes interesting for big pharma. Of so, course, yeah. So you line up a technology which works in that disease, and then you've got another 10, 15, 20 diseases. You suddenly build some quite big markets. So suddenly rare diseases are becoming really important for big pharma. But they need to understand those diseases first. So the only way you can understand them is to access the patients, know what their genome looks like, know what their lifestyle looks like, know what their symptoms look like, know what their medication usage looks, looks like. But they can't do that because when there's 20 patients in the world, big pharma is too big to find it. It's like a, an elephant trying to find a needle in a haystack. Mm. It's not going to happen. So, so what this Rarmark company does is, is it's skilled at going out and finding them. It knows how to find needles in haystacks. And it then takes all those needles and it then builds data sets around all those needles. And it then points those data sets up towards pharma and says, you guys want to know about this particular disease. Here you go. Here's the data set. Here's the patient's. Um, and so that's a really interesting sort of take on a whole new world of medicine where rare diseases, going back to 2005, rare diseases hardly existed as a, as a, a therapy area within pharma. So last 10 years, 15 years, just exploded. Mm. And that's largely data-driven and it's also technology-driven. Gene therapy technology is, wow. is now here to stay. So yeah, really, there's fun times in, health, yeah. in health, digital health um, and health technologies in general. Do you ever take stock? Of you know that calculation you did right at the start of how many patients that you could impact as a surgeon. Do you ever take stock of where you are now? Occasionally, so I, I tried to have that 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 you know very quickly back of the envelope, thinking about well, I wonder where I am now and where it will go. Um, I haven't done a detailed calculation yet, but I'm I know I know it's on track at least to be more than I was operating <laughs> on. That, that, that's the um, that that's that's for sure. So yeah. it's, it's reassuring, but I I should do it more detailed. Um, let me know if I you would, do it. Would, yeah, no, I should. <laughs> um, a bit of a, a bit of a broad question. Forgive it, I suppose. But in two thousand and five, could you have predicted where we are now? No, see, that's the thing. Two thousand and five, we didn't know the smartphone was there. Yeah. So we, you could not have predicted where we were because the smartphone did not exist. Yeah. So we'd have been thinking in terms of computers and, and yeah, you know, internet. Yeah, faster horses. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the compute power in our hands now is completely different. The other big thing that has shifted, I suppose, is machine learning. Again, is a five to seven year phenomenon mm. where if you were to say 10 years ago, you know, what's the impact of AI on, on any of our, in our lives in general, but particularly in healthcare, most people would say absolutely negligible. In fact, mm -hmm. I went to a, an AI thing at, at Bloomberg and it was before the big progress in computer vision, which happened about six to seven years ago with... Um, with that uh, particular library that got built to start um, generating the algorithms to start recognizing images. Um, and then the combination of that with deep neural nets was what has just completely changed. So that, and that's a five to seven year thing. So um, five to seven years ago, we, a computer wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between a, um, you know, a, a lamp, well, a post box and a telephone box probably. And, and yet, I mean, even now, um, most computers can't tell the difference between a Dalmatian dog and a Stracciatelli or chocolate chip ice cream. If you just show them those two, you know, white background with dots and then slightly different, it's 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 hard. It's hard for those things. Now that's starting to come through. The most powerful computer visions that you know are able to do that, and actually, the some of the things we're investing in the UCL Tech Fund are doing that in real time, in in not just static pictures, but but moving pictures, and so. Computer vision is moving very, very fast, but it was the advent of that, that library that came along which has started to, to really power computer vision. So um, there's been a number of changes in the last five to seven years which will change. Those technologies will now start to come in the next five years. So computer vision as a, as a backdrop to, um, 
uh, enhancing diagnosis and detection and so on. Um, but those are kind of applications of current technologies. It, it will take that time to really come in in a sort of commercial way. So it's almost the sort of things we're seeing now come into the to the you know to the academic just being possible. That's what we're going to see in sort of ten years time. And so if I think back to the UCL Tech Fund, what are the big, big leaps? So, you know, we've got a, there's an investment in a quantum software business. That's going to start impacting the world in 10 years plus. Um, quite what the impact on healthcare is going to be, it's, it's, that's not going to be the first place it'll impact. Uh, but it will have big impact on, actually it will have a big impact on modeling. Modeling, molecular modeling is one of the big things which we are really bad. So in terms of pharma drug development, I think that's when things will really change is when we really nail the power of quantum computing. Um, and so, for example, you know the, far, the, the harbor process? Yeah. No one can crack that. No, indeed. It's the most inefficient chemical process. Yeah. Um, it, I can't remember the percentage of the amount of energy used in the world goes into making fertilizers by the harbor process, but it's an enormous chunk of energy usage in a process which is something like 70 or 80% inefficient. And so if you can improve that efficiency rate, you can have a massive impact on, on, on global climate change or you know, CO2 emissions, energy usage, and so on. Um, and the harbor process, they reckon, will not be uh, cracked or improved or made more efficient until you can harness the power of quantum computing. So that's one of the first things that these software guys are, are, are going at. You know how, um, uh, so we're really going off on a tangent here, but you know how... Um, <laughs> How DeepMind produced AlphaGo, the reason why Google bought DeepMind. I watched that documentary the other week. Yeah. So AlphaGo is never going to be the thing which um, which uh, changes the world, but that was the signal to yeah. the world that AI has now moved up a scale and the technology companies recognize it and want to harness it in real-world applications. The same thing will happen with quantum computing is that that will go out and it will it'll start to prove itself with two or three... Uh, validations and mm. one of them will be something like the harbor process and that'll mean that we can then crack really really hard to do simulations of, of molecular development mm. and that might change the rate at which we find new drugs i'm a slightly skeptical around the whole the current the current phase we're going through is the use of regular machine learning mm. deep neural nets to um to crunch data to come up with new target discovery and um uh, drug discovery approaches Jury's out on that one. Lots of money going into it. It's fascinating. But those companies are still trying to work out what they are. Are they a service provider? Are they data crunchers? Are they drug developers? They're still working that out. And who knows Who knows what it's going to be? Um, so, yeah, I, there's lot, lots lots to happen way down the track, but that's crystal ball gazing. Um, yeah. What's going to happen here now? I, I, do you know what? I think it's going to be the really simple low-hanging fruit in digital health. I think there's lots and lots of low-hanging fruit and we shouldn't be thinking too, you know, too far down the track. Actually, there's lots of things that need to change. We've still got lots of paper to go digital. We've still got processes to become more, you know, better linked. We've still got... I think while we've still got fax machines operating, we can't really talk about um, quantum computing exactly. in health, unfortunately. Exactly. <laughs> We're just not that privileged yet. Um, mm. So I've really enjoyed this. This okay. has been awesome. I've I've so learned a hell of a lot. Um, the way we end these podcasts, I and mean, we normally end by getting to summarise about yourself and, and the business and things if it's a founder. But I, I think it'd be just great if you could just summarise by just telling us a little bit about Albion, just as a summary, um, and just any advice you've got of our audience. There'll be some doctors listening that might be keen to get into investing. There'll be some entrepreneurs listening that might want to get into Albion. Um, so any advice for our listeners, essentially? Um, yeah, so Albion, um, we're a multi-fund manager. We manage about £1.2 billion pounds of, of funds, of which about 500 are venture funds, and that's where I spend most of my time. Um, and we invest £1 to £10 million pounds in, from late seed through to Series B. Um, uh, technology investments primarily and that includes digital health and then we have one fund which as I said is dedicated to UCL IP emerging from University College London and that invests between £100,000 and £5 million in any kind of um, 
commercial research coming out of University College London that might be cell therapies, gene therapies, uh, or quantum computing. Um, so that's our full scope. Um, but we're pretty optimistic and we'll look at most things and we love meeting entrepreneurs and founders as they found their businesses and staying in touch with them as they need to um, raise further money down the, down the track. Even if it's too early for us to invest now, we like to um, meet them early and just help them along their way, um, get to know them um, and give them some pointers if we can. Uh, and especially in digital health, we like to do that. It's a small world and we all need to build an ecosystem where we can sort of help each other. Um, and there's, a, there's great opportunities in the UK, so we, we are keen on fostering that. And any advice for people looking to get out of medicine into investing? So I'd say absolutely don't be afraid of removing yourself from the sort of shackles of being a clinician. It's too often you can feel like you've just invested so much time and effort into being a clinician that that's all you can do. It's absolutely not. Look on that as a, as a great education and a great experience. Um, but if you want to go change it in some way and if you want to um, you know, do something differently with it, then there's a huge amount of opportunity. And I think now is way more than it even was when I, I left. The entrepreneurial ecosystem is massive. So you'll have lots of people to support you. The amount of funding and angel funding and so on is way, way better. So my advice would be get out into it, be ambitious, network like crazy and my tip to anyone in terms of network is every time you go meet someone ask them for two people that you should you should be you should ask to be put in touch with who you think would be valuable to me in future and i'll reciprocate the uh you know at some point in time and that way you you just you expand your network so much quicker uh and that that's helped me a lot it's just meeting people and asking to meet more people and just being resourceful the other thing i'd say is if you are raising money is just understand your customer understand your stakeholders especially in in healthcare there are so many stakeholders that aren't what you think might be your customer you have to understand every single stakeholder and you can't do enough demonstration that you understand your customer early enough so when you come and talk to investors if you can show that you have you have understood your customer or your stakeholders and you can demonstrate how you understood them and you can demonstrate that they've parted with cash to do that or they've parted with information to tell you about how they view your technology or what you're trying to do for them. That's worth its weight in gold. But too often we just see people coming and saying, this is my thoughts, this is my idea. It's all in theory. And we say, well, have you spoken to anyone? And, and they haven't yet because they've been too afraid. So it comes back to the beginning. Be ambitious, get out there, meet people whether it's your customers, whether it's your investors, whether it's um, investors who might invest in you in 10 years' time, that might be a meeting that's worth having. So just be resourceful and meet people, I guess.